Hey, church family. Due to technical issue, we didn't get all of the, the scripture reading for the sermon recorded today. So uh, let's read that now together. It's going to be 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 25. It says this. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why then have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put your sin away. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And, God, or, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? Now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name because of the Lord. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Lord, we do thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you for how even texts like this you can use to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, because this is, even this text is about Jesus Christ. Lord, as we see him foreshadowed and prefigured in the Old Testament, would you help our hearts unite to this text in such a way that we'd read it appropriately and read it with lenses to see the beauty of the gospel in the midst of the horrible consequences of sin. We love you, Lord Jesus. Be merciful to us through the preaching of your word, we pray. Your name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, um, being a church that... One of your identifying factors is preaching line by line, verse by verse through books of the Bible. You come to weeks like this and you think, oh boy, (laughs) 
Um, and yet, what do we know? Why is it that we do that? Why is it that we preach line by line, verse by verse? It's because, church family, we believe with all our hearts that the power is in the Word of God. The power is in the Word of God to change hearts. The power is in the Word of God to convict sin. The power is in to the Word of God to bring honor and glory to God through its proclamation. And so, though this week was not necessarily a fun week for me in, in, in visiting and examining the text, um, uh, we cannot say that we are a church that values expository preaching and skip passages like this, can we? No, we, we believe that this word, this chapter, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, just like the other 66 books are. So, with that being said, there's some work to be done before we get to this passage. And that is actually a lot of work to be done. It starts back in Genesis. We learned this morning that God created man in his own image. We learned who this God is, that he is creator, that he owns everything, that he created all things, and that he is good. He is sovereign. He created man to, again, bear his own image, to have fellowship with him in the place called the Garden of Eden. Everything was right in that world. God created this man particularly to lead all of creation in worship of him because he himself is glorious by his very nature. And yet we know the story, right? We know in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam rebelled against this good and holy God and sinned. And in sinning, he declared that he himself ought to be worthy of all worship instead of his creator. And all of us, as we read from our memory verse, were born in that line of thinking. We're born bringing honor and glory to ourselves instead of our creator. And this is the very crux of sin, the very heart of sin. And yet, even in the book of Genesis, that sin must be punished. Why? Well, the book of Habakkuk tells us that God's eyes are too pure to approve evil. He cannot look upon wickedness with favor. He can no longer be just if he simply passes over sin without a due punishment. And so that punishment for sin is death. Not just physical death around us, though that is, as we see even in this text, a very real consequence of punishment of sin, but spiritual death separated from him for all eternity with no hope on our own merit or effort to get our way back to fellowship with God. But even in God's declaration of the punishment of sin in Genesis 3, he makes a promise. He makes a promise early on in the scriptures in the third chapter, right after Adam and Eve sin, to say that he is going to sin, the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the seed of the serpent. And in crushing the seed of the serpent will redeem mankind for himself. And so throughout the rest of the scripture from Genesis chapter 4, we're, we're looking for this seed of a woman. We're looking for this anointed one, this Messiah who's going to come and set everything right. And so uh, the Bible unveils this story in this way. We think right off the bat, it's Abel, right? Abel is the one. He's the son of Adam. He's the real, literal seed of the woman. He must be the one by which uh, the Lord will bring about this redemption. But Abel's murdered by his brother, and so it cannot be Abel. Then we begin to think, oh, mankind's so wicked that the Lord floods the earth, but he, he has a covenant with this one named Noah, so it must be Noah. Noah must be this seed. And yet even right after this world is flooded and the Lord restores Noah and his family, what does Noah do? He sins in the eyes of the Lord, and punishment must come. We think Abraham, Abraham is a righteous man. Surely this, this old, wise Abraham will be the one. He's the seed, and yet... God promises Abraham, through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. They'll have descendants, as many as the sands and the sea and the stars in the sky. And yet Abraham denounces and despises the word of the Lord by going into Hagar, his maidservant, instead of his wife. So it cannot be Abraham. On and on we go. We have the patriarchs. We look at Moses. And now the Lord has made his covenant with a nation, with a people, the people of Israel. And he says, through this people, I will set apart for my name. If they obey me, I will bless them. If they disobey me, I will curse them. My covenant will be with them. And what do we see Israel do? Immediately after God ratifies his covenant and delivers them out of Egypt through the Exodus, they constantly grumble and complain and rebel against this Lord. In fact, it gets to the point so far where, where Israel literally says, we reject you, Lord, as our king. We want a king for ourselves. But friends, God's faithful to his covenant promise to bring forth a seed. And so we get a king, a king like the king of the nations. However, his name is Saul. He is not 
God's king. He is the people's king, the king they wanted to go out and fight their battles for them. And, and Saul breaks his covenant with the Lord. And yet the Lord, even in his faithfulness, sets out a man after his own heart. We've not seen terminology used like this in all the scripture. A man after God's own heart, what does it look like? Well, it looks like David. David is the one we're introduced to who is this uh, king that God has after his own heart. And we, if, we're, if we're reading through the story, I know we have the whole Bible. and We know there's a lot of books coming after First and Second Samuel, so we may get a hint towards the end. But if we're reading and following along with the audience, we're thinking this surely must be that seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, ridding this earth of sin and death forever. And, and David actually looks the part for a whole lot of First Samuel. He suffers. He endures suffering. The Lord goes with David. He blesses David wherever he goes, wherever David fights and has battle. The Lord gives him favor. The Lord chooses David. He puts aside Saul. David is raised to this king of Israel. He is made king over Judah, Israel, all the lands united. The people are following the king. And we think this must be the one. This has to be the seed. It is King David. And yet what we saw so dishearteningly, we saw there may not be a better character, a more godly character in the Old Testament than King David. And what we come to in 2 Samuel 11 is some of the most heinous sin we've seen in all of the Bible, where David views a woman Bathsheba understanding that she's the wife of another man and takes her for himself, impregnating her and then doubling down and aiming to get rid of Uriah, first trying to deceive him and then leading to the very charge of his murder. And our hearts are broken because we know Israel's never been higher. We thought this was the seed and yet he sinned in such a heinous way against the Lord. He was God's covenant representative and yet he instead is more of a representative of the, the father of this world, the devil, than he is the Lord and the way he handles Second Samuel 11. So Second Samuel 12 comes along and here comes Nathan, the prophet. And, and Nathan tells David this story about a man who has one little poor lamb. He's a poor man with one little lamb and this rich man with, with several flocks of sheep comes in and he steals the man's lamb, kills it and takes it for his own. And this poor man loved that little lamb. And David is incensed to anger at this story. He cannot believe that this has taken place. He's, his anger is aroused and he says, justice must be repaid. And that's where we started our reading, where Nathan turns around and said, you are the man, David. This is about you. You have done this. And last week we examined that even in the midst of David's sin, the Lord in, in Nathan's proclamation was exceedingly gracious and extravagantly merciful. Why? Because we saw in the rest of First and Second Samuel that when Eli sinned, the Lord put him to death, he and his sons. Or Eli's sons sinned and he was put to death. We see that Saul sinned and he and his sons were put to death. And yet what did the Lord promise David? You shall not surely die. And not only that, but, but he also says the Lord has put away your sin. So we see that as extravagant mercy and exceedingly great Grace, And yet we saw last week how, how that mercy and grace cannot be grounded simply in the passing by. And we began to wonder how, how is God simply going to pass over the sin? I mean, is that the definition of a good God who looks at the heinousness and the injustice done to someone like Uriah and says, no big deal, it's passed over? Well, I'm arguing today that what we actually have in our text is... Is, is the how prefigured. The Lord is giving David a picture, even in the death of his son, of just how he's going to pass over David's sin, and that is the coming of David's son. Here in, in God's forgiveness of David, what we actually see is a shadow of Christ who covers David as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And let me just tell you, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning. I want you to read your Bibles like this, particularly the Old Testament. You know who the main character in the Old Testament is? Jesus Christ. He, he's the main character in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Yes, it's in types and shadows, but it's clearly perceived as we come to the new. We notice then. So I want you guys to read your Bibles like that, unapologetically and theologically. 
David passes by, or the Lord passes by David's sin. And we have to ask why. It's because the Son of God, even back then, accepted the penalty, accepted the cost. In fact, I want you to see this is kind of the main idea of our text this morning. The Son of David will die for David's sin. The Son of David will die for David's sin. Now, you see, if you're just, if you're just reading that in the text that we portrayed to you this morning, that, that can seem very morbid, and yet... When you see the big picture and you know the thread of Scripture that we're supposed to be looking for this Messiah who will die for sin, it becomes clear. We see it portrayed or prefigured here in our passage. And I I present you this morning with two simple points because I really believe what we have here clearly displayed is the problem and the solution. Though not clear before, um, after the coming of Christ, we know, again, what was concealed formally will now be revealed. Here's the problem we have. David's house, first of all, David's house is now cursed. That's a big problem. David's house is now cursed. And if you're just joining us, the reason that's a big problem is because we spent, boy, like a month and a half going through 2 Samuel chapter 7, which was God's covenant with David. And and there is a structural, a thematic, a linguistic link between chapter 12, what we read today, and chapter 7. Those two passages are actually very similar. All you need to see is what was promised in chapter 7, that raising of the seed that's going to come from David's own body that brings forth his eternal kingdom is now countered with this promise we're given in chapter 12 of God raising up evil out of his house in such a way that the sword will never depart from it. So we wrestle with these two promises that the Lord has made to David. How are these two promises going to coexist? The promised house of blessing now also becomes the house of cursing. Or the blessed blessed house is the cursed house. Or the cursed house is a blessed house. That's a problem. David's house is now cursed. But but an even greater problem, as we look through the grand thread of Scripture, is this. the, The real problem is... No one is faithful. As we come from Genesis to here, we we wrestle with this as the grand problem of Scripture. There has not yet been one who is faithful. Not even one. I mean, think about it. How, How many covenant partners has the Lord had up to date here in 2 Samuel? Ask yourself. How many covenant partners? And then ask yourself, How many were faithful to the Lord's covenant? None. So so how is is God going to accomplish his promise on his side of the covenant to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth if he has not a faithful covenant partner? By God's grace, after God graciously brings David's sin to light, we do see, however, that David, unlike Saul, David does repent. Repent. And let me just say, we we acknowledge that and we say, praise the Lord for the evidence of God's grace in David's life. We can even take up Psalm 51 and see the beauty and the fullness of his repentance. Though, as I'm going to argue later, I'd be slow to really import Psalm 51 directly into this text with what I think the writer's really doing here. But, But even so... David's repentance is a lesson worth learning. It's a response worth imitating. We covered this two weeks ago. We ought to be praying for the Lord to bring to light our sin. And when he does, we confess our sin. We acknowledge that our sin is sin. But however, this text is again about a picture of God's grace and extravagant mercy that we examined last week. And so... What I want us to see boldly is the solution to this problem as it's illustrated in the text. If the problem is there is not one faithful covenant partner, we could actually just skip right to the book of Isaiah where the Lord will actually declare that he himself will have to come, which is what I'm about to show you from this text. 
He'll look and see no one who is just. He'll look and see no one who is righteous. He'll look and see no one who will intercede on behalf of his people. No one being faithful. And so he will come and work salvation for his people. And in the end, there will be a Redeemer who stands on Mount Zion. And we know him to be Jesus Christ, of course. But we're not in Isaiah. We're in 2 Samuel. So we got to do the work in this text. We see the solution here also. What does the text say? The text says David's son will die. In our passage here, what we see is there is an unnamed son born to the wife of Uriah, a son born out of sin, but a son not born out of his own sin, but the sin of his father. He dies. Why? He dies because of the sin of his father. See, the first solution we see clearly in the text is David's son will die for the sins of his father. David's son will die for the sins of his father. That's what the text says. In fact, read it along with me in verse 14. However... Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Why will the child die? According to the immediate context, the child will die because David sinned. And in case you missed it, the author makes sure you don't miss the point that David's son is dead. It says dead six times in two verses, just over and over and over again, reiterated, and it's brutal. In fact, what does the text end with in verse 23? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David will not die, as we saw last week. But David's son will So the question we ask ourselves is, why in the world does the Lord put this here? Well, first, I want you to think about the parallels we see here with the gospel. Right? The Lord afflicted this child because of David's sins. In seven days, the child was afflicted. So he suffered for a complete amount of time. Seven days, that picture of completeness, fullness that the child suffered before he dies. And then we see the centrality of death in this passage. But there also happens to be what is just a weird exchange between David and his servants that revolve around the response to David's, uh, response of David to his son's death. And let me just tell you, I'm about to give you a very likely unpopular opinion, and that's okay. Um, But I want us to examine this. This is going to seem like a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think this is vitally important that we understand what exactly David's response is. Because I feel like we often interpret this as the the way by which we should grieve. But I'm going to give you some clues to think that I don't think we necessarily need to interpret this that way. First off, let me say this. There is nothing nothing more difficult and heinous and nothing more of a reminder that this world is broken than the death of a child. Um, It is the most unnatural thing in the world for someone to have to bury their own kid. My wife and I um, uh, walked through a miscarriage early in our marriage, and we still mourn that sweet baby, that sweet gift of life, every year at the projected due date. Gift from the Lord, and entirely difficult and painful to wrestle with. And so I don't want you to think that what I'm doing here is coming off... um, insensitively harsh to David's response. But I want you to know, again, my responsibility is to read the text in light of the original audience and how they were to perceive it. So I want to give you some things. Again, most interpreters interpret David's response here as a good thing. David humbles himself. He responds to the tragedy with worship. He anoints himself. He goes into the house of God and worships. And then he may be kind of that statement at the end, I shall go to him, but he shall not come to me. Seems like he may be expressing some sort of odd confidence in the Lord. It all seems good. And then we say, good job, David. He's really turned a corner. But here's the issue. The issue is the best interpreter for Scripture is the immediate context. And I, 
I'm not sure the immediate context necessarily communicates that. I just, I don't think it's the point. And, and, and unfortunately, it's definitely not saying anything about the eternal state of the child. That's not the point of the text. We can have that debate another day. I think in order to reveal, to see what God's revealing here, I think the key is listening to the servants. In fact, by the way of historical texts like this, often, often, the servants act as the voice of wisdom, saying wise things, and the main character sort of listens to them and then just not really listens to them and goes on his merry way. Here, I just want to invite you to see this thing as they refer to it, through the servants' eyes. You know what the servants are in this text? They are confused. They're they're perplexed. Why is David doing what he's doing? David sins. Yes, he repents. Then comes the death of his son. And then in the narrative, we see the birth of his son who's loved of God. And they, they don't understand David's actions. And before we really jump in to justify David here, again, I want us to consider the broader context. After the death of the son and the birth of Solomon, this section ends this way. With David marching out to take a city so he can name it after himself. He takes all the occupants in that city and he oppresses them in a pharaoh-like fashion. And then the narrative continues and what do we see? Do we see from here on in the rest of 2 Samuel a repentant David reigning over the house of Israel in righteousness and justice? No, actually what we see is a further decline of this house. There's more that could be said here. There's not a whole lot, however, in what follows that really portrays David as a new man, so to speak. So here's what we tend to do. And and here's the problem is this is not necessarily bad hermeneutics. It's just not, in my opinion, the correct time here. What we tend to do is we tend to justify David by inserting Psalm 51 into the text, which, again, is not bad. That is a true picture of David's heart. David was saved. I'm not saying he's not. But, but before we interpret text of Scripture with other text of Scripture, we have to read 2 Samuel in light of 2 Samuel before we take up the rest. And we're going to do that in just a moment. So what we see is even further decline of David. In fact, I would argue from the rest of the text on, we actually see a downhill slope. There isn't hardly anything here that portrays David as a new man. Now, that by itself, I concede, doesn't mean that David isn't necessarily acting honorably here. Maybe this is good. But I really just want us to wrestle with this a moment, and you can come to your own conclusion, as long as it's mine. No, I'm kidding. But you know what? Can I just stop and say, I love that I get to do this with our church family. I love wrestling with text with you. That might sound like a weird thing. But as long as you're engaged with the text and wrestling with it, we wrestle together and it's a beautiful thing for your pastor's heart. I can't tell you how many people I've had in my life say, I'm so sorry, I've got to ask you a question about scripture. And I'm like, what? Why are you sorry? That's like legit what I love to do. Please come and wrestle together. But another textual clue that I think that I think portrays this as David not acting honorably here, is the lack of lament. Guys, we've, we've walked through 2 Samuel so far together, and remember, the lament has really been a theme so far of 2 Samuel, hasn't it? The beginning of 2 Samuel starts how? With this long, beautiful lament for who? Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan, we get. Saul, we don't. And then we got this dude, Abner, who's an opportunist at best. He's killed by Joab. And what is there for Abner? A lament. It's shorter, it's briefer, but it still seems like a lament for Abner. And here, right here, we would expect another lament. In fact, I'm guessing that's probably why the servants are confused, right? I mean, a man who laments for the likes of his enemy Saul and the opportunist Abner, he seems to be empty of a lament of his own son? And then there's a fourth instance of lament, or actually there's a, there's a pseudo-lament we see take place in chapter 19 where when Absalom dies, 
And in that instance, David's lament is so twisted that it actually brings shame upon the very men who risked their lives to defend David and his kingdom. So you see this progression of the lament theme through 2 Samuel. All this to say that that David's, oh well, my son died attitude, maybe it should disturb us a little bit like it should disturb the servants. Maybe it should be a little perplexing and confusing for us too. Maybe we shouldn't be so quick to embrace it and say, yeah, that's, that's worship. It's almost exactly what we do with the book of Job. I didn't mention this Wednesday, but, but sometimes we take the beginning of the book of Job and say, naked I came into the world, naked I leave, blessed be the name of the Lord. Like that's the epitome of worship. When, when really the Lord spends the rest of Job teaching Job that there's a deeper relationship with him that Job's going to be introduced to. <laughs> And so if we interpret this passage canonically, we also might be less comfortable with David's explanation. Why? Because David doesn't seem to know the Lord of Hannah. You remember Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2? Her prayer that's so beautiful in which she says, The Lord who kills and brings to life, the Lord who brings down to Sheol but also raises up, That's Hannah's Lord. Hannah knows and believes that the Lord can bring back to life. That death is not the end. It's not a one-way street. So, okay, who's right, Hannah or David? Should we confess that, that Hannah's Lord is able to bring down and raise up? Or should we adopt David's view that death is the end? We're going to go down there to Sheol, but no one's going to bring his son back. Let me, let me put it this way. How would our interpretation of David's confession here maybe change or expand a little bit when we get to 1 Kings 17 or 2 Kings 4? Y'all know what's there, right? You don't? Let's turn there. How would you like to read some scripture this morning? I'm not going to make anybody read. Don't worry. I do that already with the call to worship. 1 Kings chapter 17. In case you aren't familiar with these stories, let me read them quickly. And let me remind you, 1 and 2 Samuel are one book. They're meant to be read together with 1 and 2 Kings that are one book. Okay? 1 Kings chapter 17, we'll start in verse 8. This is the story of Elijah and the widow. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm, I'm gathering up a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it. And die. This is during a, a, a drought, by the way, is why. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day of the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the words of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. 
Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Friends, it seems that Elijah didn't quite get the memo here that you can't bring a dead son back to life. Would you want to hear another story like that? That was encouraging, wasn't it? Let's hear another from 2 Kings chapter 4. This is one of my favorite stories. It's a chunk, but let's do it together. Chapter 4, verse 8. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, Look now, I know this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand so it will be whatever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, Say now to her, Look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. So he said, Call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and then he said, About this time next year you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and said to his father, My head, my head. And so he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? Is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath? And she said, It is well. Then she sat on the donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God in Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now and meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? She answered, It is well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and it has not told me. So she said, Did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready and take my staff into your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Just picture this. She's still grasping onto his legs. So he rose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. And therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house, and again went up and stretched himself out on him. And then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite woman! So he called her, and when she came into him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground, and then she picked up her son and went out. It seems that Elisha didn't get the memo either. Neither did the Shunammite woman. Once once he goes to Sheol, he's gone, David says. Or, Or let me just put it this way. What is truer worship? David's, the son is gone. I'll go to him, but he's not coming back to me. Or the Shunammite woman who goes to Elisha and clings to his foot, refusing to let go until her son is raised from the dead. 
See, Samuel and Kings, again, it's meant to be read together. It's one unified story. We can't piecemeal it together and be like, theologically, this is saying that. But over here, they have a different theological perspective. It's one unified story. And God is well aware that he could raise the son as easy as he could take him down to Sheol. By the way, I don't think it's any accident that these instances I mentioned, Hannah, the widow, the Shunammite woman, are all women. See, Hannah herself had actually experienced firsthand resurrection when the Lord graciously answered her prayer and brought life into her dead womb, metaphorically speaking. The other two actually experienced firsthand an actual, literal resurrection of their sons. Let's go even farther back. What about the theme of Genesis? The theme of the death of a son and resurrection which takes greater significance as Israel, the Son of God, approaches his own death in exile because he's about to starve. Again, meant to be read as a unified whole. So so how does the salvation of Jacob, renamed Israel, actually come about in the book of Genesis? Through the figurative or metaphorical death of Joseph and his resurrection. See, friends, you don't have to read or import this stuff in. It's like a major theme in the entire book. Death is not the end. This is prefiguring or preshadowing the truth that comes to life in the manifestation of Jesus Christ. There's actually a greater salvation coming when God's own son steps into time and space and isn't just metaphorically dead, imprisoned somewhere, and then resurrected, but literally dies on a cross bearing our sins and is raised on the third day so that by faith in him we're justified in the sight of God. See, I personally think that, that what's actually displayed here, portrayed here, is supposed to be in this section David's impotence. His disengagement, which is actually a growing theme in the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, brought to the pinnacle of 1 Kings. David is an unfaithful covenant partner. And though he says, I cannot bring my son back, he should know the Lord who can. In fact, that's the real solution we see here, isn't it? Out of death, the Lord can overcome sin and bring Fourth, a son, beloved of Yahweh. Here's what I love. Even if you disagree with that really, really long rabbit trail in the midst of that sermon, that David is acting faithfully, the Lord's still faithful to David in resurrecting his son, whether figuratively or metaphorically or so on. But he still provides David a son, and not only just a son, the son beloved of Yahweh. That's what we see in verses 24 and 25 of Second Samuel chapter 12. The Bible tells us, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Did you notice in the previous section the son didn't have a name? The son that died had no name. This son receives two names. First names by his parents. Solomon connected to the word peace, shalom. And then he is renamed, which is always significant in the course of the Old Testament. He is renamed Jedidiah, beloved of Yahweh. This son, by the way, is the last son of David mentioned in the scriptures. Who would be more unlikely than this son to ascend to the throne? Yet, this is the son on whom the Lord bestows his love? This son is a figurative resurrection of the son who died for the sins of David? But he's more than that. Jedidiah is the assurance that though David is unfaithful, That though David is impotent to bring into existence that which God has promised, David's God is able to use that which he intended for evil to accomplish good. To fulfill his purposes and plan of salvation. Have you heard that theme before in the scriptures? What do you have here? Listen, I labored a couple weeks ago to paint a picture of the, the depth and the heinousness of David's sin. You know how many wives this dude has at this point? Let's just say it's enough. You realize 
that the Lord could have used any one of those situations to bring forth the seed. And what does he do? Out of the depth of David's most heinous sin, the most heinous picture of sin portrayed in the life of David, out of that comes the one who will ascend to the throne. The one who will actually build a house for the Lord. Out of that situation comes the one who's beloved of the Lord. Friends, it's like the end of Genesis all over again, isn't it? Joseph to his brothers, what you intended for evil, I intended for good. This is what our Lord does. This is who he is. He uses the sin of Israel's son to save Israel and the whole known world at the time. Once again, the Lord is using the heinous and abominable sin of another to accomplish his plan of salvation. It is not accidental that Solomon is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1.6, connected to the son of the wife of Uriah. Through this forbidden act, the Lord unfolds his plan and carries forward the promised seed of the woman forward in time and space. And so hope is not done yet. It is not until the fullness of time where Jesus, the son of David, who would die for David's sins and all of our sins. And God the Father, as he always done, was at work in the unfaithfulness and sin of his covenant partner Israel, of his covenant partner the New Testament church, to accomplish his divine purpose for the blessing of the nations. As Peter explains it in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You, Israel, have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Like Uriah, Jesus was handed over to the hands of lawless men who put him to death. But like the David, Bathsheba, and Uriah event, God was at work the entire time. And hear me, friends. You need to wrestle with this. God is always at work in the midst of man's evil to bring about his good and perfect purposes. Is this not the story we see over and over again? And yet here's what we do. In our day, we encounter evil and wickedness, the evil and wickedness of mankind, and we shudder. We tremble. We think, oh no. Go back to your Bible and read it and reread it over and over again. He is at work even in the midst of heinous evil to bring about greater good. Do you believe that? I'm just saying, look, this, this is our God. This is his revelation. And this where we end this morning. Is, is this the God you believe in? Is it? Because if not, you need to pray for the Lord to confirm your mind to his self-revelation in his word. Out of the most depraved of situations, our God is able to bring grace, mercy, and salvation. Are you going through an evil right now? Are you faced with unspeakable wickedness, whether it be in your own heart and your unrepentant sin, or the sin of your neighbors, or the very consequences of the sin of another? Oh, take comfort! That our God, this is who he is. Even out of the greatest acts of evil, he's able to bring about blessing to the nations. And friends, he is still that God. Still at work in our own day and age. And so church, we, we confess this morning. We, we acknowledge together. We shout it from the rooftops for the rest of the week. God's grace is more than all of our sins. God's mercy is deeper than all of our transgression. God's steadfast love is greater than all the evil and wicked men throughout the known history of the world and all of human history. This is our God, and we know him in Christ Jesus. Would you stand as we close together? Gracious Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Despite our unfaithfulness, you remain faithful. The same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you are not far off. That you're not apathetic to our plight. 
that you're near, you're gracious, and you're merciful in your steadfast love, that it's ours in Christ. You have made a secure place for your people, and you will bring to completion that which you've begun in us. And Father, the reality is if the whole world is to give way and go up in flames, we will be safe and secure in our ark, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you help us because we're weak to hold fast this confession? Would you help us hold fast our confidence in these truths? Help us to proclaim this message of your goodness, mercy, kindness, and grace toward all of humanity that those who belong to you might hear, repent, and cling ever tightly to Christ, we pray. Would you encourage us in Jesus' precious name? Amen. Oh boy, well we come to the time of invitation now, and uh, there's a lot to dissect here, isn't there? I don't want you to take away from this text, if you're a believer, that if a loved one dies, you ought to have faith that they be raised to life. But friends, I do want you to take from this text that if your loved one has died in Christ, then they are alive forever. I also don't want you to take from this text that your sin has caused the death of a loved one. Um, as we saw from Job this Wednesday night, it, uh, sin is not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence. That's the story of Job, actually. So I don't want you ever to think that. But friends, I do want you to see that Jesus is the main character in the Old Testament, and he's absolutely everywhere. And today, if you didn't know it, the greater son of David has died for the sins of his father and all of his children. <laughs> He has died for your sins. If you stand here today knowing Jesus Christ, then the Son of David has died for you. And and if you haven't, and you wrestle with whether or not you belong to this this Jesus, this one who came and, and purchased salvation for a lost and dying world, then friends, would you hear what Christ has done for you? That on the cross, he put, took the punishment of David's sin, of all of our sin, and he paid the penalty. Though he did not deserve to die, there was no sin in him. Jesus willingly took the punishment and wrath of his father for the sins of his people. And not only that, he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected to life, which guaranteed the fact that every son of David, every son of the greater David, Jesus Christ, who dies, is alive together with him. You can walk away with that hope today. Now, I don't know about you, but that's some pretty heavy hope. That you'll live forever based not on anything you could ever merit or earn on your own, but based on the life and righteousness of another. You could walk away with that today if you would but repent of your sins. Understand that you were born a sinful human being who seeks to bring honor and glory to yourself. And that is not what your created purpose was. In fact, that's the real reason why you can find no true happiness and joy in this world. Because you're worshiping lesser things. There's a God and creator who loves you, who you were created to worship and bring honor and glory to you. So, so friends, if you would but repent of your sins, turn away and instead believe in this Jesus. Trust his death on the cross for the fullness of your salvation and rest in his finished work. Then today you can have the hope that the greater son of David has died for your sins. If you're here this morning and you're wrestling with that, you have questions, we'd love the opportunity to talk with you. I'll be down front. Brother Justin will be at the back of our service. We'd love the opportunity to share the beauty of the gospel message with you. All we ask is that you come see us after the conclusion of our service so we can spend lots of time talking to you about Jesus. Church, it's been a great day. Thank you so much. So many who were praying this week. This was, whew, this was difficult beyond measure. Uh, and yet, if you read ahead, it's not going to get necessarily a whole lot easier. Stuff gets pretty beautiful, but I'm so glad for brutal, sorry, not beautiful, uh, but I'm so glad for this beautiful church who loves expository preaching, who longs to preach even the hard passages. We'll actually take a break next week, and I'm not ever supposed to announce this, but we'll have a guest preacher, Brother Neil Helton from Amelia Baptist Church, will be coming and sharing what I... He asked me this week what he should preach, and I said something very, very encouraging. <laughs> uh, so I'm um, looking forward to that time with him. And so we'll take a week break, and then we'll jump right back in. God bless you, church. You are such a gift to your pastor's heart. Pray that whatever the Lord's doing in your life, you'd respond, because that's what he desires for you, is to respond.